Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. My guest today is Steve Cuomo, a former Melbourne boy turned New York expat. He sold his business five years ago in Melbourne and uprooted his young family to live in New York City to take on the role as chief marketing officer for the Howard Hughes Corporation. Steve is placemaking champion for one reason, to give people a better life. And this responsibility is something Steve and I have in common. I'm inspired by his approach to life, which is about saying yes when the instinct is to say no, it's too hard. Now living in the uber cool downtown New York borough of Soho, Steve's professional and personal creative journey continues to fuel his instinct to be a crusader for better living. Um, so it's really, really cool to be here in New York today with a good friend, Steve Cornwell. Uh, welcome, Steve. Hello. It's really cool to catch up with you in New York. Um, we've only met up a couple of times in, in Australia, if that. Um, but obviously, you know, you, your reputation goes uh, a long way. Uh, major competitor at one, at one stage when you were there. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, I just want to start with starting out. How did you start? Well, uh, Jade and I met, of course, you met my wife, Jane. Uh, at college together. Um, I thought I would be a designer. That was something, I was going to be a plumber at one point, but decided that creativity was for me. Yeah. And uh, went to design school. Uh, Jane and I met. Uh, we graduated in 92. And we really graduated at a time in Australia where there was just a real hard recession going on. I think it was titled The Recession We Had to Have by Paul Keating at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jane got some uh, freelance work with em- Gary Emery at the time. Yeah. And I was beautifully unemployed when I left. Yeah. And uh, Jane's father uh, was an ar- he's an architect, very talented architect, worked for one of the, I think one of the best architects at the time, Daryl Jackson. And uh, I met him and he said, here's a desk. Why don't you come and do it yourself? Wow. So I turned up on Monday. I think I, we had that conversation on Saturday night. Yeah. And I turned up Monday morning. Wow. And with no experience, nothing. <laughs> Working for them or just doing your own thing? Uh, it was really working for them initially. Not not really hard work <laughs> initially. And then, you know, as a t- at the time when we graduated, there wasn't any computers. That's how old I am. It's so <laughs> terrible to say, but it just really, computers had just started. I think Gary's studio, Gary Emery's studio had, I think, mm-hmm. six. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the other big studios didn't have any. Were they black and white ones? Yeah, or they a had green and green ones. <laughs> they were very small. Yeah, yeah. Twelve-inch screens with you know one megabyte of RAM, something ridiculous. <laughs> um, but we, when we graduated, of course, we were spoon-fed technology at school, and we graduated on a computer. So for me to have to actually make a bromide mm-hmm. or rub down artwork was foreign. Yeah, yeah. And so I wasn't enjoying that. And uh, really, I met a lot of Daryl's clients, and from there, we kind of grew pretty quickly. I mean, it's incredible the the growth that you then had, because you were certainly one of Australia's um, leading design companies. Leaving college, doing that doing that role, and, and becoming so successful. I mean, is something in you that made you good at business? My father was terrible at business. He actually went broke a couple of times, but my mother wasn't. She was very good at it. Uh-huh. She knew how to collect money. She, she knew how to work with money. Um, we didn't come from money, so she didn't have a lot to play with. But yeah. she was pretty good at that. But I think when you don't have a choice and you have no risk, you take 
a lot of chances and you take a lot of risks. And back then, it didn't seem like risk. It felt like fun. Mm-hmm. If I did it again now, it comes with risk. It's naivety that gave uh, you uh, strength. <laughs> well, there's a bit of that, but but I think more just you did. I didn't have a choice. Um, and then actually once I started meeting the clients and really interacting, I really enjoyed the process of it. And I, Jane was really the designer and I became really the strategist and the, you know, the business side of it. Mm. Um, but, you know, it grew quickly, mainly in architecture, signage, architecture, things like that. And then I think Daryl's business won the casino project in Melbourne. And we had a lot of friends that were on that project in South Melbourne. And we just grew up on that project. I mean, we were fed everything from identity to brands to signage to murals to communication, advertising. We really grew up on that very quickly. I mean, we met the client and then I think it was a slow burn, but over two or three years, we began to really take on quite a bit. And the business tripled in size. And did you just say yes to everything that came your way? (laughs) I did, which was terrible. But everything leads somewhere. And um, people that left that business and went to work for other marketing organizations took us with them. Mm -hmm. And post that project, when it started to wind down, because ultimately it did, Clevenger took it over as an advertising project. When it started to wind down, we were looking for other ways to expand the business. And a friend of ours took up the marketing opportunity at the Public Transport Association, the PTA back then, but they were really um, struggling with information architecture, signage, things like that. And they invited us to go down to meet with them and talk about a small signage project, which turned out to be a 10-year project where we stitched together the whole public transport system. And we didn't have any experience doing that, honestly, but... The client recognised that we understood the problem, and that we could fix it. Mm. So that was a huge learning curve as well. Jane had left the business by then. Um, we had our first son in '99, mm-hmm. Spencer, who uh, is now at college here in New York. But Jane had planned to come back after three months and never set foot inside the studio again. So that. That actually helped us because we really ran it as a lifestyle business. And when she left, all of a sudden it became a business where I had to structure it. I had to put in a management team. We had a lot to do. Did you Um, you have help to do that? um, Not really. I mean, someone that uh, knew uh, us well uh, recommended someone for us to talk to. And we we met with Mark Patterson, who actually became our, really our general manager, Mm -hmm. our MD. He was, he had a lot of industry experience. He worked with Ken's business, Ken Kato's business. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hit it off and we really partnered there to grow the business. Mm. Um, And for a lot of years, it had a lot of success. Mm -hmm. It was really good. But there came a time where Mark and I weren't really seeing the same vision. Mm -hmm. And we had a a split, Mm -hmm. which I think at the time probably could have been handled better, honestly. Mm -hmm. But uh, it did us both a favor because once he had left we grew. And I think he was probably happier what he was doing. So, you know, it's funny. You don't know how bad it is until you actually split. Yeah, yeah. And and then the business kind of took off from there. And we, we, we tripled its size and we moved the office. And it was, uh, it, look, I loved the business. Mm-hmm. I still love the business. I still every now and again go back and have a look. 
mm-hmm. of what they're doing. I was going to ask you that because, um, I mean, a lot of designers go into business not knowing anything about business. Some of them succeed and others don't do so well, and some of them don't grow. Right. Um, when you're deliberately growing a business or you hit the, hit the sweet spot with uh, understanding how business runs and kind of create a lot of opportunities, it kind of comes a time when you look very attractive to other people who want to potentially, potentially buy you and mm. you sold your business. Yes. And some people do that with success. Other people do, you know, regret it. But how did you feel with that move? Because that's quite a, you know, you're still a young guy. I recognized for growth that we needed a bigger partner. And we were approached by, um, which is now STW, to join that organization. I mean, at the time they were growing a large organization to publicly float. We, it was called Issues and Images when we started working on it. Um, they bought a small part of our business in 2004. And then over 10 years, we were looking at how we would grow with them to a national interest. And we certainly wanted to publicly float the business. Um, STW came in and bought Issues and Images, which we were part of. And we were looking to them for growth. And it didn't really work the way we wanted it to. I mean, they were a good partner and we certainly had some projects from them, but uh, they had businesses all over the country. So growing and moving came at sort of my risk um, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. We also were having great success at the time in Asia and in London and we won a huge project in America, which is why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in seeing that growth, we started sort of servicing those businesses from Melbourne. And it would look, it was great for a time and we were certainly growing quickly, but you realise pretty quickly you can't necessarily opportunistically grow. You either, you have to make a decision to open up another market mm-hmm. and that comes with investment and time and, you know, we didn't want to give it that, so we didn't do it. Mm. Um, looking back, could we have been open in Sydney and other parts of the country? Probably. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the work. Your your question before about transitioning and understanding business, I think a lot of designers don't know how to let go of the work. And it's a real challenge to train yourself not to physically do the work and to know how to coach someone else and direct them is quite a challenge. I think a lot of designers end up on the tools forever because they that's what they love, number one, it's their mm-hmm. passion. Yeah. But they don't think of it as a business. They think of it as an extension of their own creativity. Yeah, Michael Gerber calls it the e-myth. And it's where someone you think is entrepreneurial, but reality, they're just a, t- a technician that attracts a lot of opportunities. Because they're very talented. Yeah. And people want that talent, but doesn't mean they can run a business. And so I think we did well at enabling other people to design. Mm-hmm. Um, some people who work for me might argue that's, that's not true <laughs> because I certainly had a point of view. Yeah. But I wasn't jumping on designing the work. I was really setting strategy and I was making sure that we delivered on what we promised our clients we would do. So I took a pretty heavy hand in making sure that happened. But I also didn't like the idea of note-taking. I never got a brief where I thought, I'm just going to deliver you exactly what you've asked for. Because often the briefs would come in and I'd pretty quickly recognize it wasn't the right thing to be doing. Some clients enjoyed that, some didn't. Mm. But... I was never going to deliver something. You can't at the end of a project, if it's been unsuccessful, say, but that's what you told me to do. No, of course not. But a lot of people do that. They ask for a written brief, they take the brief, they deliver what the clients ask them to. It's never what I did. So do, did you say no to projects? Um, some. 
Some, but I, we always found a way. Mm-hmm. We always found a way to get the best opportunity out of pretty much everything. But we did start turning down smaller projects because you realize pretty quickly they burned so much time. Yeah. And we would take on those smaller projects on our own terms. We'd make a conscious decision to take a small project because we wanted to either do it creatively, we saw an opportunity for another market. I mean, that whole debate that rages about pitching, I know that I think Agda mm. really think it's a terrible thing. Yeah, Australian Graphic Design Association. Yeah, a lot of people are kind of hypocritical too. They say they don't pitch and but then, then they find they out they've re-pitched and stuff. I think pitching for if it's something you really want and you have no experience in that industry and you want to pitch and go and get it, that is completely fine yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Um, having this sort of ridiculous rule that's a hard line saying you can't pitch is old boy mentality protecting their turf. Mm. Agda was set up by an by a group of of people that really wanted to protect their turf. That's the way I always saw it. Yeah, yeah. That will not be popular, by the way, me saying that. No, no. But, you could say that every, every design association around sure, the world. Sure. They come with very strict rules that, that don't give a lot of young people opportunities either. Mm. So I think if young people want to come in and pitch and are hungry, yeah. then they absolutely, why can't they? Yeah, yeah. I know it's not a popular point of view. No, but I think the thing is, if you don't, I mean, we've been in a situation where we've decided to say, no, we don't free pitch. We find ways around it often. Sure. So we either do, you know, at least meet with the client and have a much thorough, have a workshop or something, invest in some time with them and then kind of convince them that they should be paying yeah. for it. And it often works, you know. But totally. But uh, I think, you know, the, the upside is far greater. If you just say no, there's probably, you're, you're not going to have an awful lot of opportunities, I don't believe, because everybody, often people will come in and undermine that by uh, doing it for free. Certainly on the big work. Yeah. On the small work, of course, you're not going to pitch. Yeah. On the everyday work that you do all the time, you're not going to pitch. But if you see a great opportunity and you have an idea for it. Yeah, yeah. We always used to say that, you know, if the idea was hard and we weren't understanding it, we weren't getting it, we wouldn't do it. Yeah. But if we had a really good idea, we would go for it and we'd do it. And, yeah. and you typically, when you've got a good idea, you can kind of get there. And you, you obviously, you grew the business. I mean, it's funny, was that a 10-year earnout or were you not intending to leave at the end of that 10-year? It, it, it had a put-and-call contract in it. It was from 2004 to 2014. In 2014, we had a very good year. Um, and Jane and I both decided that that was the right thing at the time. And the so, industry heard about it and going, yeah. holy crap, yeah, what's what, Steve? What's he doing? Is he all right? Is he unwell? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we didn't have any plans to come here when we did it. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Like we, the, co- the, the correlation between moving here and the sale, they didn't really line up mm-hmm. and we, they weren't, one didn't sort of make the other happen. Um, what we really decided to do was sell the business and then rethink what the next 10 years would be. Yeah. Um, and we were looking at our options and at the time, uh, our client in New York um, asked me if I'd like to come and talk about heading up the creative business, if you like, or a studio in New York City, mm-hmm. which they would happily move me over for. Mm-hmm. And uh, we said no a couple of times. <laughs> we certainly did. We had no intention of uprooting the family and leaving Melbourne, which I love. Um, but when I got here, I mean, it's hard not to fall in love with the city. Yeah. There's a huge amount of opportunity. And the one thing that I really wanted was growth. Mm-hmm. I felt that I had stopped growing. Personal uh, growth. Personal growth. I, yeah. I, I wanted to be challenged. Mm-hmm. 
And I think, you know, when you get to our young age, Vince, yeah. um, very few people disrupt their lives. Mm. They stick to one lane and they go right through till they're 60. And I, I just couldn't imagine 15 more years in the same spot doing the same thing. So was it hard? Did it, did it happen? Did that decision happen quite quickly after you sold this or it, during the process? No, after. So we'd sold it. Um, our client, of course, got wind that we had sold it. You're at home just kind of counting the cash. <laughs> I wish it was like that, but no, no, no. It was a good capital moment, but no, we, we, mm. we were thinking about what we wanted to do next. And we got the phone call. I went across to New York, um, spent time here. And then, you know, there was a courtship over a six-month period. Yeah. But when we finally made the decision, it was three months from signing to being on the ground. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> maybe. In hindsight, maybe a bit more time would have been good. Mm. Um, but when we made the decision, what was great about the decision is that I don't. If, I think if you take too long to make that decision, you don't do it. Mm. Like, it's a big decision. Well, you didn't really need to do it, but I guess it's just you had this burning ambition. To do something different. So how, how, did, how did the, just interested, because, um, I mean, our business is similar scale mm. in Sydney to your business mm. in, in Melbourne. And I can't imagine kind of one day not being there. Yeah. Um, and what did the business feel like? What are the, what are the people? It must have been a huge shock to the people there. Uh, were, they, were they relieved or were they, were they? Uh, uh, I think some know, of them morning? were happy. <laughs> I think some of them were happy, maybe. Um, but had you set it up to... I to, think, to work without you as I well? I think so. I mean, it, it had some very good people. It still does have very good people in it. Um, and I wasn't hands-on on the work. So I think I set it up relatively well. I mean, Anthony Nelson came with me, who was our creative director, mm -hmm. and he came a few months later. That was not an easy exit. He had no intention of coming, um, and I didn't ask him necessarily if he wanted to come. He rang me and said, I'd like to be there. Yeah. And so I made that offer and he said yes. But the, the interesting thing about the move is that when I came to New York, I actually had no idea how culturally different Americans and Australians actually are. Mm. And that was challenging because you come in here thinking, well, what can possibly be different? Yeah. And everything is different from healthcare to banking to... Um, coffee. Coffee. <laughs> Terrible coffee. <laughs> There's a lot of Australian coffee houses yeah, opening, so we're, we're, in, we're in good shape. Yeah. Um, and, but so much opportunity. I mean, Australia and certainly Melbourne and Sydney absolutely punches above its weight on innovation and idea making because mm -hmm. it's so isolated from the rest of the world. So it doesn't have the scale. It doesn't have the access. And therefore, it's really always pushing. And I felt that, that was, that's what Melbourne did well. Mm. And when I came to New York, I realized that it doesn't always happen here. Yeah. There's a lot of very old traditional systems here that do need to be broken. And that's about to happen, I'm, I'm sure of it. I mean, it's going through a huge renaissance itself. The city's always growing. It's unbelievable. It's unrecognizable. It's, I've been here three years ago and I just like so many so new... So many buildings and so many new things, so new many brands. new brands. I mean, it's yeah, huge. Sure. And that's exciting. Um, but I, look... When I came here, I had really um, uh, immersed myself in the sort of strategy of placemaking. That's really where my passion was. And so coming to somewhere like America and having five or six major projects that are some of the biggest MPCs really in the country was something I thought I should tackle. Wow. That it was great. incredible. Yeah. Well, so we have a huge project in Hawaii, which is where we started. It's a 60-acre site next to Waikiki. 
Hawaii's beautiful. And again, culturally really interesting, um, a great project. And then we have a huge MPC in Houston, Texas, which is the biggest one in the country and, and one in Vegas. Uh, and What's of course, an MPC for people? It's a master plan community. Okay. Yeah. So it's really taking in the full ecosystem of what a planned community looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's everything in between. It's not just the buildings you make, it's the parks, the gardens, the, the roads, it's the whole thing. So it's actually, it's quite a skill and I think we've done it quite well here. Mm-hmm. Um, creating culture doesn't happen easily. You have to start it. And so that's the fun, the bit that I, piece that I like the most. Um, I'm just interesting. How is it? How's that transition feel like? Because you've gone from having complete control of of your business back in Australia, to coming to working to with you know Howard Hughes Corporation, and mm. mm. um, you went client side, uh, grew a team within the the organisation. I mean, how did how did that feel? It must be very different. It was. I mean, firstly we started the studio, so I built a studio, and I then migrated to the chief marketing officer, which me for mark for me, marketing is the great learning for me. I've always been interested in it, but but never had the authority or the budget. I was always the consultant. Yeah. So now what's great is being armed with the budget, working out where to spend it and making the decisions I always wanted my clients to make yeah. to get the best out of the work. Wow. So that's been really great. I've really enjoyed that. Did you process. find that easy in the the beginning? Um the work, yes, the politicking and the, not so much the politicking, but the process of budgeting, the process of internally communicating, the process of working in a large bureaucratic, bureaucratic system and having to n- navigate that um, and not being the boss. I mean, you can no longer sort of wield the wand and say, but I'm the boss. Now you have to actually communicate and really rally people based on ideas and leadership. It's a very different model. What hasn't changed is I absolutely stand strong behind a good idea. Mm-hmm. So no one's pushing that idea over without me f- defending it. Mm. Um, that hasn't changed. Mm. Uh, what's changed probably is my m- method and the manner with which I have to do it, yeah. which is we're living in a you know very, very complex, um, very politicized and complicated world at the moment and I think internally in a big corporation like ours you have to be sensitive to a lot of different layers um, so that's been an interesting learning mm. I mean unconscious bias was something that no one talked about two years ago and so now it's front and center in everything that we do mm. and you know some people work with it well and others don't you know diversity is something that we're really pushing yeah. um, and it's it's interesting to see how it how that plays out in creativity. Do you see yourself as a a creative CMO? Or, yes. Or how how do you how do you hold back kind of? Well, I don't. Can, <laughs> <how> do, <laughs> well, well, I was going to say, how do you hold back? Com, you know, if you're commissioning other creatives or working with other creatives, how do you stop yourself kind of telling them how, what the solution is? Well, that's a very good point. I don't tell them the solution. I certainly give them a direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, the one thing that always used to bother me about what I would call content-free briefs from clients is they come to you with the function, but never with never with the vision. Mm-hmm. I think what we do well now is we we come armed with a solid starting point for any creative agency to to jump off, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's proved to be, I think, where we're getting the best work. You know, but we don't come as a content-free client. We come with ideas. We come with the world sort of at our feet and we say, this is the opportunity for you. And most of our creative partners enjoy that. Mm. Some don't, 
Some don't, but but most but enjoy having a starting point. Do they challenge you like yep. you, you challenge others? Yep, they do. And that's good. I enjoy that. But having getting to work with researchers and strategists and advertising agencies and visual, you know, 3D people and digital agencies, they've loved that process. You know, when you're protecting your own turf on a, at an agency level and you're not playing in the sandpit very well, which we didn't often do, actually, mm-hmm. um, now I'm free to kind of do all that. And I'm learning a lot through the process today, which is great. And you've been here five years now. Yeah. And the stuff that was new and slightly, you know, things being done differently, how have you adjusted to that? How do you find it today? I think the American corporate culture was hard in the first year. I mean, there's this great saying that a lot of Americans do. They, they, they like to circle back. They'll circle back after every meeting. Very few people want to make decisions in meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shocked me because mm-hmm. I thought that was maybe something that we did as uh-huh. an Asian culture, but actually it's worse here <laughs> where getting decisions made on the spot is quite challenging. Um, and I think that's what Australians do very well. They're quick decision makers. They see a good idea. Um, here it's bureau- a much more bureaucratic process and, and lots more layers. Things just take longer. Yeah. You know, a development you could do in Melbourne in a, you know two years, start to finish, will take 10 here. Wow. It's a longer, much longer. You need more stamina to do it here. That's for sure. Is that frustrating? Um, it depends. I mean... I enjoy the process of making sure that the first idea isn't the one that gets built because I think what happens potentially in Australia, certainly in Melbourne, is that there are buildings being made at rapid speed and if you really had the time to slow down a little bit and rethink things, I think the quality of architecture would be would be better. Yeah. But it happens fast. At least here, every single building is given the right level of thought. Mm. Not every single building is good, <laughs> but there are a few that are... Cheap and nasty, I mean, because the government makes sure that that doesn't happen. Keeping New York intact, making sure that we produce great buildings, is something that there's a whole process to 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 make sure it doesn't you know go the other way, which is what I think happened a little in Melbourne. Mm. It certainly um, continued to growing Sydney, Melbourne, and across Australia. Of course, there's a bit of a slowdown happening, but it's kind of a normalisation, deliberate right. normalisation. Right. There's still a forecasted growth of doubling Melbourne cities, cities in the next 15 years. New York is already the population of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how does that feel like being in, in that kind of quite compact, condensed, I mean, it's phenomenal city buzzing, but what does that feel like every day? Do you, uh, do you still enjoy it? I still love it. I mean, I live in the city, so for me it's, it's really culturally why I moved here. I, I couldn't imagine myself living in Dallas or Texas, in, somewhere in Texas or, or you know, ch- even Chicago, which is a beautiful city. New York is different to every other part of the country. It's not America. It's a different metropolis. It's mm-hmm. quite interesting. I went and did a talk at the Glasshouse during the week. I think yeah. I told you about yeah. that. With Greg Pascarelli from Shop Architecture. And he said something in that that really caught my eye, which was, which he presented, he said, you know, you feel the pressure of every square foot here in New York because space is so in demand Mm -hmm. that every tiny square foot is under pressure and you feel the weight of that. There's no space that's empty. Everyone is forcing every square foot 
And that, that pressure is what you feel. There's so much to be done. There's so much potential still. Totally. Ne- it doesn't seem to ever be done, finished. No. Oh, no, that's true. Actually, when I say that, even the parts that are empty, they're owned by people for a long, long period of time. Mm-hmm. People aren't selling off empty blocks and just churning them into cheap residential. Yeah. People hold on to them and they put the pressure on that to deliver the right return. Whereas I think what happened a lot in Australia, I mean, the things that I witnessed was taking sites, doing the cheapest possible development, churning it through a tilt slab concrete building, maybe whacking some facadism of it to make it look modern Mm -hmm. and selling it, Mm -hmm. you know. And I was was floored about the pricing in Melbourne. I went back recently and I, I, the apartment pricing in Melbourne is high compared to the rest of the world, even here in New York. Um, the one thing I do like about walking around New York, though, maybe as opposed to other parts of of uh, other countries, is that you can be in Soho and then walk literally down to the financial district and it's two different universes. Mm. You can walk through Chinatown down to the financial district and be right where we are at Seaport and feel like you're in another country. It's that diverse. I mean, I think people miss that about New York. Yeah. I know there are people that live on the Upper West Side that never come <laughs> come downtown. And when I first moved here, someone said, don't become one of those downtown people that never go above 14th Street. Mm-hmm. And I kind of mocked them and laughed and said, well, I'm from Australia. I've got plenty to explore. Yeah. I haven't been up there in, oh. <laughs> uh, in about six months because there is so much yeah. going on. But on every block. On every corner. Yeah. I mean, we live in Soho and we have absolutely no need to go outside the four streets. There's that much in it. Mm. Um, so you've got to force yourself to get out. and I mean, you have access to Europe. You have access to South America. That's, so they're close. all the good things. Yeah, yeah so close. Um, how has your family adjusted to this? Because obviously, you know, the, the parents going to move to a new country and, you know, you get busy with a job. Mm. It's quite a big distraction from yeah. the day-to-day living, the real living of, of going to school or, you know, whatever, you have, whatever you're doing. How did, how did that feel for them? Did they adjust right away? No, <laughs> no. Did they want to go home? They did, they did. It must have um, been tough. It was. I, I mean, on the first day we got here, the polar vortex had hit New York. It was minus twenty degrees. There was six feet of snow. It was New Year's Day, and we had eighteen suitcases, and we had nowhere to live. The kids weren't in school. We were in a hotel, and I think Jane cried for the first six months, <laughs> six months because the adjustment was so dramatic. But the apartment that we moved into, just by luck, was owned by an Australian artist that Jane knew, mm-hmm. David Rankin, and his wife, Lily Brett, she's a writer. And then they put it on the market. And so we'd only been there for a year. So we, luckily we had the opportunity and we were able to afford to buy it. So we, we purchased the apartment. That helped because it really gave us a chance to settle in and make it our own. Mm. So we renovated that. The kids got into schools, two great schools. They've now actually, you know, their grades. I mean, the thing about New Yorkers, everything's a struggle, whether you're six or whether you're 60. You know, you can't go and put the kids in team sport. They have to try out for everything and they get told no a lot. So these kids sort of, they get hardened by life pretty quickly and they fight for everything. But they really blossomed here. And that's been helpful for me Mm. because had they have not, we may have been going back. Are they, are they more American now? My youngest one is. 
Yeah. It's a bit of an, uh, an American twang because, you know, he's surrounded by kids saying banana rather than banana. <laughs> uh, but uh, my eldest, no, he's, he's remained an Aussie. He's, he's, a, he's around a lot of international people, so that's been great. It, it absolutely, the city is incredible, isn't it, that diversity? It's incredible. That's interesting. You, talk, you say from six to 60, uh, that kind of relentless mm. challenging. I mean, that, surely there's times when you go, God, this place is hard. Surely you get those moments, don't you? It does burn people out. It's quite a phenomenon. I mean, it's a transient city. A lot of people come in, they work for five years, they leave. Mm-hmm. Um, it is transient. Uh, a lot of people come to you know, make their careers, fulfill their dreams, all these things. Um, but very few people stick it out because it is so hard. Um, but if you can get through the first, I think many of our American friends and people have moved here that we're friends with have said, if you can get through the first five and you make friends and you settle in, you're typically going to be here for 20. Mm. Um, that's what happens. People either burn out in the first two or three and go, not for me, and leave. Or you get through the first five, you work it out. And we're slowly working it out. I came to Australia in 2000, end of 2003 to Melbourne. And it was a similar thing. I mean, obviously Melbourne's a hell of a lot quieter and safer and cleaner. Um, but that transition from from London, from a busy city to a quieter place, but that that feeling of, uh, in a way, the, the optimism, the excitement about the change, the move, the commitment to that. Because once you've made that move, you've, you've, you know, you sold your house, you moved all your kids out of school, mm. moved all your possessions to another country, you're kind of like, there's no going back. You get totally inspired by the city. Mm. You get a whole new lease on life. Yep. Um, you're kind of forced to be an explorer again because you know nothing about the city. So that was exciting. Yeah. And I'm still doing that you're five not, years not, in. Not taking it for granted. Absolutely not. You want to you want to move to where the opportunities are. And if you're a creative person, I mean, New York City is just laden with opportunity. Mm. Whether it's performing arts, whether it's music, whether it's literature, I mean. If you want to come and be an art, my wife's a painter, so she's very good. She, too. She, I think she's doing great. I mean, she's enjoying herself, and she's of any place to sort of kick off your career in painting. New York's probably the place you want to do it. Yeah. Um, there are so many artists here that that don't really make it, mm-hmm. but at least they have a reasonable career here. Mm. You know, you can be you can try and be an artist anywhere in the world, but there's so many people that buy art in this city. Mm. So she's loving that that process, and that's given her a whole new career change. She had a show last year, which did really well, and she's got a new one this year. So that's exciting. And I was going to say something about that too, because I actually invited her to come along today, right. and she said no. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, Steve can handle that. Um, she doesn't, but, she's very shy. She doesn't like talking about her own work. But what I found, and that's cool, mm. uh, what I found was was kind of inspiring was the fact that you guys have been together since you were at art college. Yeah. A long That's time. something quite incredible. I am blessed with a very patient <laughs> partner. I yeah. mean, she's a great judge of character, um, very kind, very considerate. And, you know, the thing about Jane is that she totally understands the world I'm in. Mm-hmm. She understands the business. If you, I don't think if, if you marry someone or you partner with someone who's not in that industry, they're looking at you going, what are you doing <laughs> Why are you working until midnight? Why yeah. are you working so hard? Why are you working the weekend? And that's yeah. because you can't turn it off. I mean, yeah. it's not logical to work as hard as you do. No. And it's not logical to work as late and long hours as you do. But to create great work takes, sometimes it just takes that extra 
sort of, you know, dedication to make it work. When you talk about placemaking and community and kind of working on projects of scale like you're talking about, there has to be something inside of you that's driving that desire to, can you say it's not about design, but it actually, yeah, it is about designing a better world. It is about designing better places, better communities. Mm. Um, you must see the opportunity there to do that. This is the way we talk about it. It's a deeply human endeavor. I mean, the, the bottom line is we don't make any of these places for any other reason than for people to actually experience life in a whole new way. If I was just going to be doing urban sprawl, that's not who we are. Mm-hmm. We're trying to set up ecosystems where we can give people a much better life. That requires you thinking about the future. It requires you thinking about culture. It requires you thinking about execution and excellence in all the detail, which is the design. And I think a lot of development companies focus on just building and selling, but not the future. If you're thinking about the future, you're thinking about what's ecologically sustainable for each of those, not not economically, or what's ecologically sustainable. How mm. is people, humans going to use this in 50 years from now? That I enjoy mm. because that's something that as a consultant, I wasn't able to penetrate really. You get but, to a but certain, that was your desire, though, wasn't totally, it? Totally, totally. But I think sometimes you get pigeonholed as the design guy or the agency guy mm. or the advertiser, and you go, mm. "That's actually not where the worth is." Mm-hmm. It's really coming up with how people are going to live, which is really a big ideation, you know, opportunity, yeah. which I don't think you often get to do necessarily, unless you're sitting on the client side of it. And how much of that work is is you know, using the potential community, the people who are going to end up living there. Do you, do you involve them in those workshops or we that do. work? We listen all the time. So we have great social listening, but we do have, it's an ongoing dialogue. Um, in certain aspects, like I don't know if you've heard about the great community board meetings that happen here, mm-hmm. but I've only been to a couple and I don't think I can ever go, go again yeah. because you, the, the community is invited in Anyone can attend as long as you live in, in, the, in that, um, that community board region. Yeah. And you literally can stand up and shout <laughs> and yell and oppose things that you don't think are right for your community. Uh-huh. Um, it's a pretty vicious and brutal wow. process. What's good about it, though, is that developers can no longer do deals. Mm-hmm. They can't do deals with governments. They can't do deals with planning ministers. They just can't do deals because the community keeps them honest. And that I think is missing in Australia in particular. A lot of deals get struck between the developer and the government. Mm-hmm. There's, there's deals struck all the time. You know, we'll give you this if you give us that. Yeah. Um, and the community rarely gets a voice in that process. Whereas I think here, you know, they really do get a voice and that, that shocked me at the beginning because it's not the culture we're from. Mm-hmm. But you also realize how powerful it is when anyone can go in and they have to listen. They have a lot of power in the process. Mm. Um, they're listened to. Um, they report into council. I mean, the thing about the community board is that it's, it's recorded. Every detail is recorded. I find that process excellent. I don't think I could personally sit and present to them. I don't have the thick enough skin for that because some of the things that get said are terrible. (laughs) But in general, it makes, it makes sure that development doesn't happen in this city that's not right for the community. So where, where in the world or 
locally, projects that you think are a great example of, of this being done well? There is a project here, which I think you've walked, called Hudson Yards. Yep. It's the largest commercial real estate project, really, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, $25 billion project. Yeah, it's one of the biggest. Yeah. In an incredible location. What they've done with art and culture, they actually got um, Thomas Heatherwick, who I think did the London Olympic Cauldron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really talented designer. I saw him a couple of days ago down there. Did you? Yeah. Um, his studio has built the vessel, which I think is probably an, it's probably, an, it's will be the most amazing experience as urban sculpture, probably in the city. Mm. Um, and I don't know the exact amount, but it was reported to cost in the 200 million plus range. Yeah. I don't know exactly. That's a significant investment in people. It has no function other than to elevate people in a vertical park to look out over the river. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a huge investment. It's right next to um, a building which they're calling the Culture Shed, Mm -hmm. the centre of arts and and ballet and music. What's great about that is that here is a commercial development that has thought about the long-term viability of that place and that people that work there also need to be nourished in other ways, which is through culture, arts, and that balance doesn't really exist in many places in New York City. I think they've done it better than anyone else. And then you've got our project, uh, Seaport. And we don't have commercial office. We're fundamentally entertainment, hospitality and, and retail. We have a concert, rooftop concert venue, which is probably the most remarkable outdoor music venue in the country, if not wow. the world. Really? If not the world. It's nestled right next to the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, in terms of location, I mean, New York City uh, is flanked by a road, a large s- series of heavy roads, both the West Side Highway and uh, FDR. And it's like that because as goods came in, they put them on trucks and they used the outside. I was always fascinated by the city not having any access to its waterfront. Mm. Not in a really consumer-friendly way. Everything was internal, and that's the way it was designed with Central Park. So you have this incredible city that is surrounded by incredible waterway, but it doesn't celebrate its water. It's only now, in the last 10 years, started to celebrate its water's edge. And we are one of many that are actually bringing that back to New York. It is beautiful. I mean, the thing about looking at, the other side, which is Williamsburg and Brooklyn, and the Brooklyn Bridge, it's an incredible view that mm-hmm. unless you're sitting out on the side of the water there, you don't get. Yeah. And if you've been over to Brooklyn, which I think you have I this have, week, yeah, to Dumbo. Um, there are amazing things happening out there. Yeah. I mean, it will be the second city. It already is, but it's now growing at such, such a rate. It has more of a neighbor, neighborhood quality to it, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. But when you're sitting on the seaport looking down at, so the BMW, sort of the Brooklyn Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, and the Williamsburg Bridge. There's nothing like that view. It's a very unique view in terms of scale. I've never seen anything of that scale before around the world, and that's what people come to. Yeah. They walk those bridges. The views are incredible. I mean, I never get sick of doing it. I mean, I've become a tour guide here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every single person that comes to New York wants the tour, and I never get sick of walking across that bridge. Mm and showing them the city. Do you feel like you have a responsibility in the role you have or in your life to to make a difference, a positive difference in people's lives? Sure. I feel like I feel like I can't just be thinking about what I want to produce for myself. 
Because the, the, there's two things that always happen. If you produce it for yourself and no one likes it or no one experiences it, then what's the point? Yeah. If you produce it just for the client and don't put yourself in it, then what's the point? Yeah. So it's it's a pretty a difficult balance, I think, for people. And that's what you asked me before about the transition from designers from, you know, to businesses. Well, I think you make that transition when you really understand that point. I think if you're only focused on what you can produce for yourself to go win a graphic design award mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you yeah, want yeah. To, then you never make that transition because you're only thinking about your own artistic integ- integrity. I think when you finally realize that you can make a positive difference to someone, to a human, to a business, to a brand, whatever it's going to be, then you transition. Um, okay, so what, what does the future look like for you? <laughs> the, the, the most important thing is really making sure that I'm satisfied in continuing to make a difference. If I ever stop doing that, we're in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm enjoying it. It's a great experience. We're doing some great things. But I do like the agency side of it. There's no doubt that that's a different thing. Um, more diversity, more clients. That's certainly th- things that I miss. Mm-hmm. But I'm certainly going to be here in New York City. Mm. Between here and, and London, I certainly think that I don't have any ambition to be leaving New York City in a hurry. My children are very happy here. Jane's got a life here. And, and you know, it wasn't an easy move. Um, just on that, you know, life, I mean, do you, do you think you've designed your life? Absolutely. The, the question, though, is not whether I did it purposefully or, or whether I necessarily knew all the outcomes. Yep. But the decisions that I've made certainly have been disruptive and they've shaped it in a really interesting way. I don't think I ever, if I had sat down and mapped out a plan I wouldn't be sitting in New York. I think ah. you have to take. I think you have to take the opportunities as they're presented to you. And there's any difference between say what I did, and what other people do is that I said yes. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone's instinct is to say that's too hard or, mm. or no. And I think, look, I think just saying yes. I think just embracing the idea and and saying yes is is something that not everyone can do or wants to do. Um, I think that even thinking about change means that something's changing. But you have to take action, right? I mean, this is what's really interesting is that that adventure is what keeps you passionate and alert and engaged and learning. And I think if you stop learning, that's when you've got to disrupt disrupt what you're doing. Mm. And that's what I did. And that's a brilliant way to end. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) Thank you. This has been so cool catching up with you in New York and I, I, I look forward to further conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective.